let's study this morning of what he's calling us to uh, in chapter 3 of the book of Joshua. Now, when we study this text, we, we see some real parallels to where Israel was in this passage. Leaving an old location, moving into a new location with clear direction from the Lord and a very important commission from God as to what they needed to do. They're at the end of the 40 years of wandering. If you know your, your Bible, you know the first five books of the Bible are from creation to the end of the, of the wandering in the wilderness. Moses dies at the end of uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And then we go into Joshua, and there's a transition as we start Joshua into uh, a new leadership and a new uh, movement of Israel out of the desert and into the promised land. Uh, and that starts right here in Joshua chapter 1. They've been delivered. Moses is no longer with them. Moses went up to the mountain to die, and, and everything kind of changes. There's a huge shift here that takes place. And now Israel's about to go into this land that God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 when he made the Abrahamic covenant where he was going to give him a land to live in and a great nation, and he was going to bless uh, that nation and be their God. So now we get to Joshua. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua's established as the new leader. He's only one of two people that made it all the way from Egypt to Canaan. And he's been told by the Lord in Joshua chapter 1 that it's now time to go into the land. So in chapter 2, you know it well, they send spies in. And Rahab tells them that the people of Jericho are completely intimidated and completely uh, shaken by the fact that they know God's with the Israelites. They heard what happened with the Red Sea. They heard how God has led them. And, and now they're completely uh, just stunned by the fact that Israel's now here and ready to take over. And that leads Joshua to say, if you look at the last verse of chapter 2, it leads him to say, the Lord has given all the land into our hands and all the inhabitants of the world have melted away before us. So everything's set. They're ready to go into the promised land. God's established the plan. He's provided the way. He's confirmed it to them. And now the people just need to get ready and go. So let's see Joshua chapter 3 verse 1. What he tells them and how he wants them to prepare for this. And this I believe is a word for us this morning. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. At the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. That's roughly half a mile. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Now, this is the opportunity that Israel's been waiting for for 40 years. This is what they sent out of Egypt to come to, and, and this is the place 
that, that they've heard about all through the generations of their lives uh, that God had established to Abraham this place where they were going to live and settle. And no matter what governments are doing this morning, no matter how uh, nations are trying to destroy Israel this morning, God still has a plan for Israel. God's not going to allow Israel to be annihilated. He has his hand on Israel. So it doesn't matter what Iran and Syria and, and all the other nations are thinking this morning. Israel's going to stand firm. Because God established that in Genesis 12, and he established that to these people, that they were going to come in. So after all the misery of the wilderness, after all the years of wandering, after all the bitterness of what they had gone through and seeing every family member die at some point in the wilderness, this new group really should have been very thrilled. They should have been excited about the fact that finally they were here. Finally they were on the doorstep of this new land that they were going to go into. But if we look at what God tells Joshua in chapter 1, and then we look at how he has to prove his provision in chapter 2, and then we look at what we just read, what he tells them to do in chapter 3, we have to conclude that they may not be as excited and ready as they should be. There may be some hesitation and some fear and some doubt and some reticence that, that, that they're actually supposed to go in. Now you say, well, what would have caused that? Everything's laid out. God's established it. He's gotten them here. It's obvious that the land's there. They sent the spies. The spies confirmed everything. The people of Jericho are terrified. Everything's great. Why would there be any hesitation? Why would they fall back in any way from confident faith in God? Now, it's important that we understand this because these are factors that could hinder us personally. And they could hinder us as a church body if we allow them to under, undermine our faith. And they can have a tremendous impact negatively uh, on our individual and collective psyche if, if we don't fight against them and if we don't uh, yield them to Christ and say, Lord, you need, to, you need to overcome this in our thinking and in our lives because you're providing a new door of opportunity for us and a new place of ministry and we want to go in confidently. So I encourage you to write some things down here. I'm very uh, alliterative this week, so we're going to have a couple different lists. But let's, let's write down some of these things because we need to be aware of these thoughts in our head. The enemy will work against us and try to dissuade us uh, as we uh, see this door of opportunity opening to us as a congregation. So what were the things that could have held them back? Number one is inexperience. Every one of them, other than Joshua and Caleb, we're younger than 40 years old. So they're all young. They're all kind of green. There are no patriarchs to look to other than Joshua and Caleb. There are no senior leaders. There, there's nobody that, that's kind of uh, older and respected other than these two men that they can look to. I, I believe all along they had assumed Moses would take them in. That seemed logical. He led them out of Egypt. That was the hand of God. So, so they assumed that, that Moses would be there, but now he's gone. And they're maybe a little bit nervous about this new development and about their, their, their lack of youth. And sometimes that hits us, especially spiritually. If you're young in the faith or you're still kind of growing and maturing, you, you may say to yourself, well, I'm not ready to do the work of the Lord. I'm, I'm still young and, and, and I need more time. But, but that should be a greater impetus to get busy, to study and learn and progress in our walk because we don't want to have the mindset that Timothy had, which is I, I'm involved uh, in ministry, I'm walking with the Lord, and yet I'm constantly kind of insecure. 
Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, don't let people despise your youth and your inexperience. Instead, work to be an example of the believers. Overcome your inexperience by, by, by striving for the Lord and by growing in the Lord and maturing in the Lord and being strong in the Lord so people can actually look to you as an example rather than somebody that can't be trusted. So if you're inexperienced in the Lord, if that's, if that's where you are this morning, you're, you're new to the faith, you're growing, you haven't grown as fast as you want, now's the time to bear down and really walk with the Lord and start to study and mature. Second problem they could have had was insecurity. They had the Word, they had the presence of the Lord, they had a promise of the Lord, they had a leader that actually had been there at the Red Sea when it parted, but, but they're still scared and intimidated. They're going into a land where the people are settled and where the armies are coalesced and they're larger and the nation is established and the Canaanites are there and the Canaanites were not nice people. They had a reputation for being brutal with their enemies. So here they are, all of them under 40, and they're being told to go across the Jordan and to take the land. And they're probably looking at each other feeling kind of inadequate and insecure like, what are we going to do now? That's why God even says to Joshua... Three times in the first nine verses of Joshua 1, he says, be strong and courageous. I'm with you. Joshua, be strong and courageous. You need to go forward. Now, Joshua, get the people together. Be strong and courageous because you need to go forward. See, the enemy loves to hit us in times of uncertainty. He loves to hit us in times of insecurity. Because he watches us and he sees how sometimes we move quickly away from trusting in the Lord and looking at our circumstances. That's why it's so crucial that we get our minds off of ourselves. Because when our minds are on ourselves, that's where insecurity is bred. Insecurity is a breeding ground of, out of self-focus and self-centered thinking and not trusting in the Lord and not looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So, so when we're dealing with insecurity and fear and inadequacy and just kind of a, a feeling of we're not capable enough, that means our focus is not on the Lord because the Lord always gives us strength. It means our focus is on ourselves. So we've got to get past the insecurity. Then the third issue that I believe was there that we don't talk about very much, but I believe had a really large role in their hesitation, was irritation. Think about it. They had seen a lot of change over the last 40 years. They had seen people rebel and break away spiritually. They had seen people die. Death was a regular event in the wilderness. If you have two million people walking out of Egypt uh, up to the day 40 years later where the, they entered in the promised land, that's an average of 137 deaths a day. That's a lot of bodies falling every day. For an hour, just dropping dead. Boom, there's another one. There's another one. There's a family member. There's a friend. There's a colleague. Just every day there was death surrounding them and they'd continue to walk and just leave a trail of bodies behind them. So, so there may have been an irritation there. Maybe they were resentful against the Lord. Why did you punish our parents this way? Is it worth it really to follow God? Maybe they were angry and bitter and frustrated that things had not turned out the way that they hoped they would. And don't discount their propensity for, for murmuring and complaining, constantly questioning God, constantly rebelling against the leadership, constantly longing for their old life in Egypt. It was a toxic situation. 
And it would have been easy for that to undermine their faith and their commitment if they didn't recognize that that discontentment and, and that discipline from God was a result of an unfaithful generation. The reason God had to say, you're going to wander for 40 years and everybody's going to die before they get to the promised land was because Israel denied the fact that God had led them out of Egypt and started worshiping a creation that came out of their rings and their jewelry and saying, that golden calf is what led us out. Even as God's talking on the mountain and giving the law and they see the lightning and the thunder and Moses comes down glowing from being in the presence of the God, they're still saying, no, the golden calf's what led us out. They were unfaithful as a generation. And that's something we're going to really increasingly face as believers. The questioning and mockery of our convictions, even by people who seem religious. The attack on leaders and friends and people who are serving the Lord. The appeal to be more carnal instead of holy and set apart, and we have to really understand that lines are being drawn right now spiritually in our world and in our nation and even in, in, in Christianity. Lines are being drawn, and we have to establish who are we going to follow. What are we going to follow? What are we going to stand for? Not longing for our old life, not looking back, but looking forward. Not irritated that God uh, maybe puts us through trials sometimes or that things turn out differently than we thought or, or that people are criticizing us for walking with the Lord, but, but staying faithful and steadfast. You see, the fourth problem that they had beyond inexperience and insecurity and irritation was a, 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 a habit of iniquity. We'd call it sin, but I needed another I word, right? There was a habit of iniquity. Their forefathers had rebelled against the Lord and rejected His law and rejected His leading, which is why they all had to wander. But now this generation had an opportunity that the Lord was providing for them a new place, a new opportunity, a new expression of God's grace and God's favor. And they needed to be the generation that broke the sin habit once and for all. They had seen firsthand evidence of God's provision and the fact that God would not tolerate iniquity. So now there's a fresh start. There's a time to break through and be holy. See, some of us come from backgrounds, many of you come from backgrounds and situations where you didn't grow up in a Christian home or there wasn't any kind of spiritual environment or, or biblical training and understanding. And instead of yielding to that, you now have the opportunity to break that spiritually destructive cycle and to walk faithfully with the Lord and to teach it to our kids and our grandkids so they'll establish new spiritual habits. We don't have to be creatures of what we learned. We now can develop a new generation of followers of Christ. That's why God says, put the ark out in front. Let's, let's establish this correctly from day one because when your forefathers left Egypt, 
All they did was complain. They got to the Red Sea. They didn't trust me. I took them through miraculously on dry ground. Three verses later, they're complaining they're hungry. I gave them bread. They got sick of that. I gave them water from a rock. They weren't really content with that. They thought it was bitter. I gave them quail flying through the air that they could grab and break their necks and eat. But they got tired of that. Then they started to complain that they missed the buffets in Egypt and that Moses wasn't an adequate leader and that we should really go back. And what's God doing? And why is God so difficult? All they did was complained. So Israel, we're going to start again. We're standing on the verge of the promised land that I told you I'd give to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. You're about to go in now. Let's not do the same thing your forefathers did. Put the ark out in front. I'm going to show you that I'm leading you in. All of you are going to have to pass by it. And I'm going to repeat the miracle that I did at the Red Sea. I'm going to now part the Jordan River. The waters are going to stack up. And you're going to walk through on, get this, dry ground. And when you get to the other side, you grab some stones from the riverbed. And you set up a memorial. And when your kids say, Dad, Mom, what's... What's that? What's that pile of rocks right there? You tell them that's where the Lord brought us in. Because we're not going to repeat what your parents did and your grandparents did. How vital is it for us in the middle of an increasingly hostile spiritual culture that we live as believers, holy, set apart, faithful, confident, trusting in the Lord, unwaveringly stand for Him, that as a church, we unwaveringly stand for our convictions and our witness, and we take this opportunity that God has given us now to really impact people for Christ. You see, they may have thought they had some very clear and rational reasons for not putting their confidence in the Lord, but, but faith isn't limited by only what it sees tangibly. Faith sees the potential of what God can and God will do based on His character, based on His faithfulness, and based on His promises. And that's what they had. They had all those things. So while they may have been outnumbered and, out, and, and outskilled and maybe even outclassed, They had a greater advantage than any of their enemies. And it's for the reason that Rahab gave them. The reason was the Lord was fighting for them. And no enemy, not even the devil, can stand against the Lord. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 5. God says, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I've been with Moses, I'll be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. So be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Now go over to chapter 2 and verse 10. Rahab's talking to the spies. She says, We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, who you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth below. See, in the first text, the Lord confirms the truth about how He defends His people and secures what we need to fulfill His will. And then in the second, somebody who didn't know the Lord, somebody who who had, had not been there when Israel crossed the dry ground, 
who had not seen God's faithfulness in the wilderness, who had not stood at Sinai and heard the voice of the Lord, who had not found bread on the ground every morning or seen water come from the rock. This person, Rahab, who was not a a, a believer in, in God in the way that these people were, this person, Rahab, she says, we know the truth. We don't even believe in your God, and we know the truth. We know that God is fighting for you, and that this is the true God. And when we realize that that's our enemy, not Israel, but God, when we realize that that's our enemy, we lost all confidence, because we recognize that your God is unlike any other. Think about the resource, if you'll forgive me for saying it that way, the resource that we have in the power of God in our lives. If Rahab can come to that conclusion, then how great should our faith be? How much should our faith explode? And we say, God, you're with us. You'll help us. You'll provide for us. You've led us. You've been faithful to us. You've never failed us and forsaken us. And you're showing us a new opportunity. So Lord, all we're going to do is trust in you because you're the God of the universe. You're the greatest God in all the world. There's no God like you. There's no one that can challenge you. The enemy is a fake And if you're on our side, we need nothing else. See, Israel had a distinct advantage over their enemy. And we have the same advantage over the enemy in our lives. Because he's wandering around looking who he may devour. He wants to take us down. But how many of us know the greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world? God is on our side. Don't hear that sentence lightly. That is one of the most amazing sentences we can ever utter. God, the God of the universe, the God of creation, the Lord of all things, the one who controls all things, the one who is holy and just and perfect, who has every right to send us to hell. That God is on our side. He says, I'll be faithful to you. Why? Because he loves us. I'll never forsake you. Why? Because he cares about us. I'll lead you faithfully. I'll guide you. I'll show you the path. I'll provide. I'll remove your enemies. I'll take care of you. Now just serve me. And we say, well, I don't. no, there's no, don't. there's just, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to walk with the Lord. We're going to trust the Lord. We're going to be for the Lord because the Lord is for us. And what an amazing thing that is. Israel had advantage after advantage after advantage. Let me give you a couple of these. Write them down. I'll go through them quickly. They had the promise of the Lord. For Israel, it pertained to the land and to victory. But for us, there are hundreds of promises that the Lord gives to us that assure us of victory over sin and victory over temptation and His constant help. And now God is giving us as a church fresh spiritual land to capture for Him. There are people all around our new building that need salvation. There are families that need help. There are marriages that need reconciling. There are people who need love and care. There are children that need to know about Jesus Christ and need to be trained in the way that they should go so when they're old they won't depart from it. There are people that need spiritual strength and foundation. And guess whose job it is to do that? It's ours. 
So they had the promises of the Lord. They had the presence of the Lord. They had seen it tangibly through the wilderness, the cloud by day and the pillar by night, filling the tabernacle each time it was set up, coming to the tent of meeting where the presence of the Lord would come in and Moses would go in and talk to God face to face and the people would receive mercy. This generation had always known, this hit me last night, this generation had always known the tangible presence of God. From the day they were born to the day they walked into the, to the promised land with the ark leading the way, they had always been able to see, literally see, the presence of God. And yet we, in 2015, still have a greater advantage than that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit himself indwells us. I don't need a cloud because the Holy Spirit's indwelling. The presence of the Lord is with us. And our children and our grandchildren and our neighbors and our friends should all know the presence of the Lord because they should see it present in us. So they had his promise, his, his uh, presence, a couple other things. They had his power as we do with the Spirit. They had his provision because he said he'd go before them and destroy their enemies. They had his purpose, which was to occupy the land and then to worship and serve him there and to be fruitful. What a powerful commission we have as we move from this building to our new building. Not just to sit and soak and settle in, oh, finally this is, this is settled, but to exalt the Lord and then to get busy about the work of ministry because we're called to be fruitful in terms of our lives and in terms of our outreach. We have 5,000 homes within 1.3 miles of our church. 5,000 homes. Let's say that's 2.3 people per house, which I think is the national average. That's like 12,500 people within a mile of our church that need to know about Jesus Christ. That is a door of opportunity. And we can't just come in and sit and soak. And we don't. I'm not criticizing this morning. I'm just saying this is going to be the, the inclination that the devil's going to whisper in her ears. All right, finally, now you're settled. Just, just kind of like, no, it's time to get busy. Because God has a plan for us. And just as Israel spread out in the promised land and claimed it for the Lord, now we have the same calling to spread out and influence people for Christ. So despite their fear and their hesitation... Think about the joy and the anticipation they must have felt as they stood there looking across the Jordan River at the new land. Finally, there was a different view. Finally, there was a new horizon for them to look at because for 40 years, for their whole life, for, from the day they were born in the desert to right now, the only view they had had was sand. Day after day after day, looking at brown and tan. No real trees to speak of, no flowing rivers, no green space, no fruit growing on trees, nothing. They just had sand. And finally, Deuteronomy 2, God says to them, you've walked around this mountain long enough. It's time to go to the promised land. And now here they are, and they're on the banks of the Jordan River, and they're looking across the, the beautiful, fresh, rushing water at this fertile land that God says is filled with milk and honey. And God says, that's your new home. That's what I've provided for you. And from now on, from this day forward, your view is going to be different. 
Every morning when you wake up and look out, you're going to see green and lush and a land that I promised Abraham and now have provided for you. And every day that's going to be a reminder of my faithfulness. Every morning when you and I look in the mirror, it is a reminder of the living testimony of God's grace and God's faithfulness. He has changed our eternal view and that new perspective should drive us and motivate us every day. And just like Israel, we have an assignment now. So like them, we need to prepare ourselves again. Let me close with this. Look back at Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Because the Lord gives Joshua three commands here. He says, put the ark in front of you, consecrate yourselves, and cross over into the land. Now those are added to the words of chapter 1 to give them and to give us this morning five steps of faith that we are called to take. What is God calling us to as a church? We just crossed five years. It's not coincidental. I don't believe in any way, shape, or form that this is the weekend we're moving to our new home, that God's providing a new land of opportunity for us. So put that together. If that's true, and I believe it is, then what is God calling us to? Because like Israel, we stand on the precipice of a new land. So what does God want us to do? I encourage you again to write these down. There are five steps. I'll go through them quickly. Number one, there's a calling to consecrate ourselves. Chapter 3, verse 5. Consecrate yourselves. I love the word consecrate. It's a very strong Hebrew word that means to dedicate, prepare, be holy, be sanctified, and be set apart. Dedicate, prepare, be holy, be sanctified, be set apart. In other words, commit yourself fully to the Lord every day to keep your heart right before Him. And that calling to consecration is, is really, it's, it's hourly, it's minute by minute. And I want to stand here on our last Sunday in this building and challenge us and challenge myself as a people who know God and love God and serve Jesus Christ. I want to call us this morning to a fresh consecration of our lives to the Lord and a fresh consecration as a church as we remember His faithfulness and we look to His leading that we will now commit ourselves in a fresh way to serve Him and to walk with Him and to dedicate ourselves to Him. What better time of the year than the time when we celebrate thanksgiving to God and we celebrate the birth of Christ that has redeemed us from sin to say, Lord, it is time for me now to consecrate myself to You in a new way and to put myself before You and say, Lord, my life is dedicated to You. I'm Yours. Make me holy like You're holy. And the enemy's going to come after us like crazy. He's going to try to divide us and dissuade us and fight against any movement of holiness. He's going to fight against our ministry. He's going to try to divide this congregation. He's going to do everything in his power to work against this. Because if he sees a people that are consecrating themselves to God, he knows that he's about to lose. Consecrate yourselves. Joshua says to the people, take three days, prepare yourselves, consecrate yourselves to God. Second, there's a calling to call on the Lord. 
Once we get settled in this new building, we're going to meet for prayer meeting. Because like Israel, we need to seek the Lord and we need to rely on Him to help us. Join us Sunday mornings. Next Sunday, 9 o'clock, we're going to meet in what's the fireside room. You'll get to know it. We'll give you maps next week. Well, just join us for 20 minutes of prayer, 9 to 9.20, every Sunday morning. Come pray with us. Come call on the name of the Lord. Listen, if, if He's going to promise to be with us and to never fail us or forsake us, then I can't think of anything that's more important for us to do than to abide in His presence and ask Him to help us and lead us and give us wisdom. So, let's join together. Let's call on the name of the Lord. We need to be dedicated as a church to prayer. It's one of the main reasons why we started as a church, that it would be distinctive that Harbor Rock Tabernacle is a house of prayer for all nations. And that starts with us. So consecrate, call. Third, there's a calling to courage. Again, chapter 1, God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Why? Because courage combats spiritual wandering. Courage combats fear and failure and discouragement. One of the enemy's greatest attacks on the church in this last days is to tempt us to shrink back spiritually. So you know what? We're going to do just the opposite. We're going we're gonna to go even harder after the Lord. We're going to strive even harder for the Lord. We're going to serve the Lord even more faithfully. Israelites may have been inexperienced and insecure and, and irritated, but the Lord says, stop focusing on yourselves. Focus on me instead. Be filled with the courage that I'm with you and I'm fighting for you and it's your land and I've given it to you. Now go occupy. Well, Lord, we don't... No, no, I, I don't want to hear it. Go in and occupy. I gave it to you. And if you lack courage, remember that I am with you. If we are really trusting the Lord, then courage will be a distinctive of our faith because it proves we're walking by faith and not by sight. A faith-filled believer will always be a courageous believer. Fourth, quickly, we need to fulfill our calling to continue forward. The priests holding the ark, they had to take those first steps into the Jordan, which was at flood stage, flowing quickly. It was a wide space, probably here to the back of the sanctuary where they crossed. It was, it was overflowing its banks. So the priests, as they're carrying the ark of God, and two million people are standing there waiting, going, what's going to happen now? The priests had to take that first step into the water into the, as, they, as their feet walked through the mud and they had to put their feet in and they had to pray and hope and trust that God was going to do exactly what he said he was going to do, that he was going to pull the waters back 14 miles and stand them up on their end and that they would stand in the middle of that Jordan River on dry ground. And then the people who watched this happen had to all gather. Come on, kids, let's go. Come on, grab the, grab the cows. Come on, we've got to go forward. And they had to now edge down over the banks and look. And there, the ground wasn't muddy and wet and gross and yucky. The ground was dry. How could that be? Mommy, how is the ground dry? Listen, that's the Lord. Come on, let's go. 
And the, and the people now had to look half mile up. And there were the priests standing there in the middle of the, of the dry riverbed holding the ark of the covenant of God, the presence of God. And now they started to walk. And the ground was dry and they walked over. And they had to trust that those waters weren't crumb, uh, were going to come rushing back and wipe them away. Imagine the nervousness is apparent with a little three-year-old who's toddling through the Jordan River where just a couple minutes ago, the water was rushing by. Come on, honey, let's go. Come on, where are the waters, mommy? They're way up there. Come on, just keep walking. There was a trust factor there, and they had to keep moving forward. This was the way God had provided for them to go into the promised land, and it, it required faith that God would provide and keep His Word. The Lord is taking us on a very interesting path to get to this next land, and He's testing our reliance on Him and our willingness to walk by faith and I want to commend you again. Hear me. This is my heart. I want to commend you as a congregation for being faithful and being resilient and for trusting God and for being committed to the work of ministry. But listen, our faith can't relax now. We have to renew it and get a fresh commission for God because he wants us to advance to this new horizon. And in doing that, we look at the last thought, our last calling is to create a new legacy of faithfulness and righteousness. We now need to move beyond what's happened in the past and learn from it and remember God's faithfulness and not be hindered by it. Once the people got in the promised land, it, it hit me. Once they got in the promised land, there's no record of them ever longing for Egypt again. Remember how when they wandered, oh, we want to go back to Egypt, oh Moses, why did you lead us out here to die? It was so much better back there. We had everything we needed. It was wonderful. Oh, we just want, let's turn around. Come on, everybody, let's turn around and go back to Egypt. It was so much better there. How are we going to cross the Red Sea? I don't know. We'll figure it out. Let's just go back. Once they cross the Jordan and get into the promised land, there's not one record in the book of Joshua where they say, oh, we wish we could go back to Egypt. Why? Because they were now in the place of God's blessing. And when you're in the place of God's blessing, you never, ever, ever want to go back. I can't think of a better desire for us today in our lives and as a congregation to be right in the center of God's leading and God's blessing as his consecrated children. There are so many plans he has for us so many opportunities for growth and ministry, and He is waiting to open up heaven and pour out blessing on us if we will be faithful to Him. So as people of God, I'm done, as a congregation, we need to commit ourselves to Him in a fresh way this morning.